Arthur, author Robert Frost summed up all that he had learned about life in three words. Life goes on. <laughs> life has no timeouts or intermissions or half times. Life never takes a break in order for you to catch your breath. Life goes on. And the key to fulfillment in life is to find some meaning along the journey. This was the ambition of the ancient Greeks. They scoured life looking for some overarching purpose that would make sense of it all. You see, the Greeks noticed that nature operated according to universal laws. Thus, they figured there had to be a master plan, kind of a logic or an intelligent force responsible for the order in the symmetry that they observed in nature. The Greek philosophers, they coined a term for this ultimate reality. They called it the logos, or translated into English, the word. This became the preoccupation of Greek philosophy for century after century to identify the logos, the reason behind all reality. They examined the visible world around them to try to pick up on some expression of this unseen purpose. And yet, despite their great wisdom, the Greek philosophers failed to find an answer to the ultimate question. In fact, you could say that their search was a bust. Their wisdom is summed up in the words of a man who quoted Robert Frost and then added his own addendum. He said, life goes on, I just forgot why. That is the story for a lot of people. The gospel here in John, John's gospel, the apostle John, he wrote to a Greek audience and he must have shocked his readers. For in the very first chapter, he answers the question that had stumped their famed philosophers for centuries. John has good news. The word has been heard. The unseen has now been revealed. There is a God, and he has made known his nature in a word. The logos that the Greeks were searching for was not some primal force as they had thought, but a person named Jesus. Jesus is the reason behind reality. He is the logos behind the cosmos. Jesus Christ, John says, is the residence of absolute truth and undiluted love and eternal life. Life goes on, and according to John, it's all about Jesus. Come to Jesus, and you'll find the reason you were created and the purpose for your life. Well, John kicks off his gospel with a bang. He says, in the beginning was the Word, or literally in the Greek, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, here's one of Scripture's clearest testimonies to the deity of Jesus. For Jesus is the Word. And John states emphatically, the Word was God. Just as my words are the expression of my mind and my heart, the Word is the expression of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tell us that in times past, God spoke through the Hebrew prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is God's final word to man. You know, in the world of sports, the Nike swoosh is everywhere. It's the company's logo. Nike pays sports teams to wear their swoosh on their uniforms. Nike's logo is nothing more than a fat apostrophe, but it's instantly recognizable anywhere in the world. It's associated with all that Nike promotes, speed and skill and athleticism and victory. Well, God also has a logo. The Word became flesh, a baby. A fat little apostrophe, if you will, was born in Bethlehem. Today, when you think of God's infinite knowledge and his ultimate power and his perfect love, think of Jesus, God's logo. Our Lord Jesus is the Logos. Jesus Christ is God's swoosh. And all of the Nike company's goals in corporate culture are expressed in that swoosh. Likewise, 
All of God is packed up and revealed in Jesus Christ. And yet here's a difference in these logos. Nike created its swoosh, whereas the logos of God was not created. Jesus was before. He existed before the creation. He has existed from eternity past and will to eternity future. Notice John says of Jesus in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. You know, in these first two verses, John sheds light on the mysteries of the universe. Jesus is the expression or the logos of God, but he's more. He's actually God himself. The word was God. The Greek word for God is theos. Thus John is basically saying that the logos is the theos. They're one and the same. Jesus was preexistent and uncreated. He was with God before time even began. Obviously the key to life and truth and God is Jesus Christ. Well John adds in verse 3, All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is not only uncreated and preexistent, but nothing was created apart from him. Jesus is the creator. You know, on the sixth day of creation, in Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God referred to himself there in the plural pronoun. The Bible teaches us that there is one true God, but that one God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians refer to God's nature, His triune nature, with the term Trinity. God is a blend of both unity and diversity. He is one God, but He exists in three distinct persons. And God the Father was not alone in creation. You remember, all three members of the Trinity played a part in the creation. In the Bible's opening scene there in Genesis, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water. It's then that God the Father speaks through the Word, or Jesus Christ, let there be light, and there was light. Hey, as John says, all things were made through Jesus. And then in verse 4 he says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know, due to the modern advances now in genetics, we can grow a baby in a test tube. And we can later implant that baby in a mother's womb. We can manipulate the genes of tomatoes and flowers to produce specific flavors and colors. We can play around with life's programming, but we don't produce life. Life, you see, is a gift from God. John says it originated in Jesus. In him was life. Jesus is the essence of life. He's life in all its fullness. Jesus is life as God intended it to be. He says in him was life and the life was the light of men. You see the key to improving the quality of life is not unlocking our DNA. But it's submitting to the Holy Spirit who desires to transform and reprogram us spiritually. Jesus is the template that's placed over every human being to help us understand what real life was truly meant to be. If you want your life to make sense, get to know Jesus. His life is the light of men. You know, it's interesting that the ancient Greeks, they thought that life consisted of four elements. Light, breath, water, and bread. And this shapes John's approach. He's writing to these ancient Greeks. In chapter 1, John portrays Jesus as the light of life. In chapter 3, he's the breath of life. In chapter 4, Jesus is depicted as the water of life. And then in chapter 6, Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. More little translation reveals a progressive sense. The light keeps shining in the darkness, yet the darkness doesn't grasp it. Did you hear about the colony of mice that used to live inside the grand piano? You know, from the very beginning, they enjoyed the beautiful music that came from the piano. It brought light into their dark piano world. And common sense told them that the music was no accident. 
All mice believed in a great unseen pianist. Until one day, an inquisitive mouse crawled into a part of the piano that no mice or no mouse had ever been in before. He reported back that he had discovered that vibrating wires made the music. There was no pianist. The music came from those wires. The theory, that theory of music dominated mice thought until one day another mouse went even deeper and further into the guts of the piano. He reported back that it wasn't the wires after all that made the music, but little felt-covered hammers. The hammers struck the wires. That's what made the music. And so now the piano mice believe that their world is mechanical and impersonal. And sadly, the great unseen pianist is thought to be a myth now by the mice world. And yet what has happened in that mice colony, in that piano world, has happened to mankind in the real world, in God's world. Since humans have been able to scratch the surface and learn a bit about the mechanics of God's creation, we've now excluded God. We've concluded that the music of life is the result of wires and hammers and keys. And we forget that the great unseen pianist sits behind the keyboard and makes music out of life. If you haven't discovered Jesus, it's because you've only looked inside the piano. You've limited your search to the dark piano world rather than to look outside of the piano. For there is a light shining into the darkness, John says. When Jesus entered the world, God shined a light into the dark piano. The problem, though, is that we humans are so used to the darkness that now the light hurts our eyes. And we want to cover them up rather than open them up and receive the light. This was why God sent a forerunner to pave the way for Jesus. And we read about him in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not the author, the apostle John. This is Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer. It says, This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. You know, just as the moon has no light of its own, likewise, John was not God's light. Like the moon, he simply reflected the light of the sun, God's son, Jesus Christ. This was John's role. This was his mission. Jesus, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Here is the greatest tragedy in the history of mankind. Our creator visited us. And yet his creation failed to recognize him. Verse 11 says of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus suffered from a tragic case of mistaken identity. Reminds me of the 33-year-old Virginia Beach man who killed his mother-in-law with a hatchet in the garage. It was a gruesome murder. Terrible way for a mother-in-law to go. When the police asked why he did it, he responded, I mistook her for a large raccoon. Sure. I buy that. Mother-in-law, large raccoon. Sure. Obviously, this guy's mistaken identity was just an excuse for murder. And yet, this is what happened to Jesus. He came to his own, the Jews. They they should have recognized Jesus for who he was. I mean, the Hebrew nation had been trained. They had been prepped to recognize their Messiah. If they had been looking without prejudice, they would have seen God's nature and God's love and God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. But there was evil in their heart. This was their problem. And rather than receive the truth, they killed God. Their case of mistaken identity only covered up the evil in their heart. Because of pride and prejudice, 
they mistook Jesus for the raccoon. And then in verse 12 we're told, but as many, you know, his own, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Understood, the Jews felt like it was their right to be children of God. They assumed that membership in God's family was a matter of pedigree and privilege and performance. And they were the possessors of all three. Oh, they had the bloodline. They were born of Abraham. And they behaved according to the law of Moses. Their salvation had been bestowed on them by priestly pronouncements. But you see, they were completely wrong. For salvation is bestowed by God and God alone. God sets the terms. God fields the request. God grants the forgiveness. God regenerates the spirit. Salvation has never and will never be left in human hands to allocate. It does not come via blood or birth. It does not come by the will of the flesh or by your muscle and willpower. Nor does it come by the will of man, some deed or pronouncement. It doesn't come by breeding or deeding or decreeing. God alone hands out salvation. And catch this. He has chosen to give it to only those people who've trusted in his son. To them he's given the right to become children of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He writes, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. The Greek word dwelt, it means to pitch a tent. God moved to the hood. He pitched a tent in our backyard. He came to this earth. God stepped out of heaven to walk our mean streets. You know, this gains for Jesus some street cred. It does. He's gone out of his way to see where we live and to know our predicament. In essence, God became a mouse and he joined the colony to try to get the good news to those who were living in the piano. Now, please don't gloss over this miracle. The word. Imagine now. The logos, the great unseen reality, the reason behind all reality, the word, the logos, the literal end all, eternal source and culmination of life. This is the logos, the ultimate of life and time and eternity. The logos fashioned a body from human blubber. And then he slid from eternity into time through a woman's birth canal. And then he was wrapped up in scrap cloth. And he was laid in a feed trough. God truly entered the world through its lowest door. He stooped down to lift us up. And Jesus now cries when we cry. And he laughs when we laugh. And he hurts when we hurt. You see, the Greeks figured that the Logos created the universe, but then he went into hiding. He walked off and left it behind. But John says Jesus not only created the universe, but catch this, he joined it. He joined his creation to identify with it and to ultimately save it from its sin. Verse 14 continues, And we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full, full, mind you, of grace and truth. I once had a friend who worked in a nuclear laboratory, and every time I saw him, I would sort of jokingly tell him, man, you look great. There's just a special glow about you today. You remember when Moses descended from God's presence on Mount Sinai? Remember his face shined with God's glory? He had been exposed to the divine fallout. The radiation of God had sort of rubbed off on Moses. His face literally glowed. It was the mo-glow. That's what I call it. 
I don't think Jesus glowed in the dark or that there was any kind of phosphorescent tint about him. But you know, when you met Jesus, you knew that this man had been with God. There was a glory about him. There was a residence, an aura that he carried. There was a command about Jesus. There was an authority about Jesus. You know, Jesus was only 30-something, but he seemed timeless. Everything about him, I'm sure, smacked of the supernatural. Traces of God were all over this man. John says, we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, this is what set Jesus apart. It was this blend of grace and truth. Hey, there was no harshness in the truth that he spoke, but neither was there any compromise in the grace that he showed. There was no sin that he wouldn't call out and expose, but there was no sin either that he wouldn't forgive. Jesus was amazing. He was full of both grace and truth. And note what John calls Jesus. He uses this term again in John 3.16. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Since Adam, all other humans were conceived in sin. You and I were conceived in sin. But Jesus, understand, was born of a virgin. Thus he escaped the Adamic sin. Jesus is the only man who has been born with God's nature and with God's perfections. And this is how it works in Hebrew thought. Keep this in mind. In in a Hebrew concept, the offspring of a flower is a flower. The son of a dog is a dog. The son of a man is a... Thus, the son of God is... God. That's how the the Hebrews saw it. You see, man begets man, but God begets God. And that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father meant that Jesus was God. It spoke of his deity. When Jesus was conceived, the Spirit of God borrowed Mary's womb. The seed of God nestled in a human cradle. Mary's child was no mere man, but was the offspring of God. No one else has that kind of origin and claims of exclusivity. Jesus is the only begotten of the true God. Verse 15 shifts to John the Baptist. Notice. John bore witness of Jesus and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John was the older of the two cousins. He was six months older than Jesus, remember. But here John refers to Jesus' pre-existence. This is why John says that Jesus was before me. You know, unlike you and I, the birth of Jesus was not his beginning. John knew that Jesus had shared eternity past with the Father before ever coming to earth. And when Jesus came to earth, he came bearing gifts. Notice verse 16. And have his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Never forget, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come with judgment. He didn't come with condemnation. He didn't reveal anger. No, when God became a man and revealed himself to us, he came with grace upon grace. That's amazing. There's a Dennis the Menace comic strip. Did anybody like Dennis the Menace? I I used to love Dennis the Menace. Kind of related to him, I suppose. But there's a Dennis the Menace comic strip that perfectly defines God's grace. Dennis and his buddy Joey, they're walking down the street. They're coming home from the Wilson's house. And their hands are full of cookies. And their faces are covered with chocolate smudges and crumbs. And they've got great big smiles on their face. And Joey asks, I wonder what we did to deserve this. And Dennis, normally the menace, a young man who certainly needs the grace of God, he answers with the greatest definition of God's grace I can think of. He he says, look, Joey, 
Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. That's grace. It's unprompted love. It originates in God, not us. It can never be earned or purchased. I like this one. Grace is love that's on the house. God saves us and forgives us, not because we're nice, but because he's real nice. And Jesus is full of this grace. He's full of it. He loves us. And his love is grace for grace, literally grace compounded daily. He layers grace on top of more grace. And Jesus is not only full of grace toward us. Notice this. He fills us with grace toward others. If you're getting it, you're going to be giving it. If you're not getting grace, if you're not giving grace, it's because you're not getting grace. But if you get it, you're going to give it. Grace is the power to love others unconditionally. And here's my goal. I want our church to be a grace place. Above all else, when you walk into the doors of this church, I want you to be able to find God's grace. I love verse 17. He says, for the law was given through Moses. What's Moses known for? When you think of Moses, what do you think of? The law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When you think of Jesus, you should think of grace and truth. Through the law, Moses revealed God's justice and God's righteousness. But through Jesus, he has revealed the truth about himself and his love. A love that's far too expensive for any of us to earn. You know, Moses said, don't cross that line. Jesus said, I'll bear the cross for you. Moses said, we'll go toe-to-toe. Jesus said, oh, no, we'll go arm-in-arm. Moses said, you'd better not. Jesus said, trust me, and I'll make you better. Moses said, you don't deserve God's blessing. Jesus serves up a blessing none of us deserve. If you want justice, well, see Moses. But if you need mercy and grace like me, call on Jesus. Grace came through Jesus. Perhaps I can say it best in one sentence. Moses wrote traffic tickets while Jesus teaches us how to drive. And here's the challenge for our church. Do we want to be those who write tickets? Who judge other people? Who condemn other people? Who are quick to point out their faults and their flaws? Or do we want to get into the car with other people and teach them how to drive in a way that will please God and glorify God? Here's the problem as I see it. We're agents of grace, and yet too many churches act like disciples of Moses. Particularly here in the deep south. It seems that Moses has set up shop on every corner. The law gets preached every Sunday. Too many churches are judgmental and legalistic. At Calvary Chapel, I want us to be a grace place. Hey, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Whose disciple are you? Moses' disciple or Jesus' disciple? During a conference of British clergy, a table full of theologians were discussing what, if any, religious belief was unique to Christianity. And the group was struggling for answers. A man suggested incarnation, and yet several of the scholars there noted that other religions also had stories of gods appearing as men. Still another fellow said resurrection. And yet examples were given of alleged returns from the dead. The conversation really turned into a heated debate. That's when C.S. Lewis strolled into the room. He asked what all the ruckus was about. The group of theologians told him that they were discussing the unique contribution that Christianity had brought to the world. Lewis looked at them with this incredulous look on his face and he he responded in a rather matter-of-fact tone. He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Think about it. That's true. Christianity is all about grace and truth. Every other religion is all about works and what you can do to earn your way to God. Only Christianity brings this concept of grace to sinful human beings. That's why I'm a Christian. 
verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, he's very close to to the Father. He has declared him. Exodus 33 verse 23 tells us that Moses saw God's backside. I mean, that's as close to God as you can get under the law. But in Christ, we can behold God face to face. Jesus told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, John says that Jesus has declared the Father. The Greek word translated declared is the word exegesis, which means to explain or to unfold. Sometimes we'll call a Bible study an exegesis of the text. Well, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Watch Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And you will learn much about God. Jesus is a sermon on God. His whole life was a divine revelation. He was the Word made flesh. Now verse 19 shifts us back to John the Baptist. John was Jesus' advanced man. He paved the way for Jesus by preaching a message of repentance. We're told, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, the baptizer, he lived an austere life. You remember, he came out of the wilderness munching locusts and wild honey. He lacked the refinement of the priests there in Jerusalem. And yet, people from all over Israel were flocking to John. He told them to repent. Then he dunked them in the water as a symbol of their cleansing. The religious hierarchy in Jerusalem, they saw John as a threat to their status quo. He was deluding and undermining their influence. And so they sent a posse of priests out to the river to interrogate him. And they asked him directly, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Remember the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah is Christ. It means anointed one. So he's saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, according to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Elijah is to return before the coming of the Messiah. And this will happen. Revelation 11 mentions two witnesses that will appear on the earth prior to the second coming of Jesus. And it's my opinion, you read their descriptions, I think you'll agree, that one of those two witnesses will be Elijah. The priest knew Malachi's prophecy. And they asked him, asked John if he was Elijah. John, John says, no, I'm not. There are other passages that say John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah. The priest also asked John if he was the prophet. This was a reference to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like Moses, the fulfillment of which would be the Messiah, Jesus, not John. They continued their interrogation. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? They're asking John to identify himself. And of course, this was John's big chance to launch his ministry. I mean, he was getting attention from the big Jews there in Jerusalem. They're knocking on John's door. But boy, rather than promote himself, John turns and he points to Jesus. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John identified himself by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah had mentioned an unnamed prophet. A voice crying in the wilderness to make preparation for the Messiah. In essence, John is saying, I'm just this voice. I'm just a voice. I'm not a personality. I'm just a cry, not a guy. In other words, what's important is not the messenger, but the message that I deliver. You know, in the first century, it was common for visiting dignitaries to send out an advance team. They would travel the route that the king would pass. And if there were dangerous bends in the road, or if there were potholes, they would straighten out the path. Their job was to make sure that the coast was clear for the coming of the king. This was John's job to a T. It had nothing to do with him. 
It was to make straight the way of the one who would come after him. John's ministry was to point to Jesus. In Pam Petler's book, The Joy of Stress, there's a chapter entitled, They're Getting Ahead of You. And and in this chapter, she tells the story of a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley. This was an intense, highly competitive young man, high strung, with great ambitions for himself. And yet one day, while in the library, the fellow went berserk. He just blew a gasket. The police eventually arrested him while he was running through the library, pointing and shouting at the other students, Stop! Stop! You're getting ahead of me! You're getting ahead of me! How do you respond when you suddenly realize that other people are getting ahead of you? It's been said, just when you start winning the rat race, you meet faster rats. How do you respond when you realize other people are getting ahead of you? While you're here tonight, I hope you know there's a salesman out there somewhere planning his day tomorrow, hoping to get the jump on you. There's a student pouring over the books, not at my house, but somewhere out there, (laughs) trying to get ahead of you. There's a musician practicing, perfecting their scores and their talents trying to get ahead of you. There's a ball player training. There's an athlete in training. All of them are hoping to get the drop on you and be the best. How do you respond? John ran his race faithfully and he left it up to God where he finished. Are we trying to be somebody? Even somebody for God? Or are we content to be a nameless voice? Just a voice crying in the wilderness. Not a celebrity or a personality or a star. Just a shout out for God. I think we all should be able to say, I'm a voice. It's not the messenger here that's important. But it's the message. John could see that Jesus was getting ahead of him. John was decreasing. Jesus was increasing. And that was all fine to him. That's the mission for which he had been sent. Well, verse 24 Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, where are you getting your authority? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. John's authority was an extension of the Messiah's authority. John was the one who came, or Jesus was the one who came after John. And Jesus had granted John his authority. And compared to Jesus, John, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, let alone wash his feet. He says, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And and this is near the site where God rolled back the waters of the Jordan and allowed the Israelites to cross over uh, on dry ground uh, into the new land he had promised them. The crossing and the baptism were both signs of new beginnings, and it's appropriate they occurred in the same place. Today, you actually have to get permission from the Israeli army to visit this site. And I've put in for it, and if it all goes well... We'll be there three weeks from this Friday at the very site where John was baptizing there at the Jordan River. So pray for us that we'll get to go. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now understand this. For 1,500 years, the Jewish sacrificial system had produced an ocean of blood. Millions of animals were sacrificed. And they all had pointed to one supreme sacrifice. One that would end all other sacrifices. The cross of Jesus Christ. The Son of God would spill sinless blood. His sacrifice would do what all others couldn't. Jesus' sacrifice would do what all the others had foreshadowed, but had fell short accomplishing. A permanent pardon. This is what Jesus grants. And not only did he die for Israel's sin, we're told, but for the sin of all humanity. Once there was a mom 
who read to her daughter the story of Abraham and Isaac. The little girl heard how that Abraham had strapped Isaac to the wood and he had raised his knife and then at the last second God had stayed his hand and had provided a ram for the altar. You know, the mother, she considered the story a testimony to God's wonderful faithfulness. But the little girl, she had a whole different take on the story. When it was done, she looked up at her mommy and she she said, I don't like killing animals. You know, when you hear Jesus called the Lamb of God, sometimes you and I, we miss the obvious. It doesn't really hit us like it should. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God. You know, you took your lamb. And you brought your lamb down to the temple and up to the altar. And you watched there the priest. You actually helped the priest slit the lamb's throat. It suffered. And it convulsed right there in front of you. And it it squirted blood. And it squirmed in pain and kind of withered and writhed around on the floor before it fell over dead. It was awful. It was an awful scene. And remember, you were attached to this lamb. You probably raised this lamb. This was like killing one of your pets. Temple Jews never heard the word sacrifice and reacted glibly. When they heard sacrifice, they knew the cost. When John pointed to Jesus and shouted, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you can believe that it meant something to the people. I'm sure he said it triumphantly, but I'm also sure that he said it with a tear in his eye. For he knew the eventual pain and loss that Jesus would endure. Well, John continues speaking of Jesus in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, now, you know, I used to think of Jesus and John sitting around as teenagers, you know, just kind of working out what they were going to do later in the years ahead, you know, and just kind of planning this all out. John did know Jesus, but it wasn't until he baptized Jesus and the Spirit came upon him that John knew for sure that Jesus was the chosen Messiah. He says in verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You know, the Father himself had confirmed Jesus' identity to John. It wasn't the stories that John had heard from his mother Elizabeth in her encounters with Mary. It wasn't his own personal conversations with Jesus. God spoke to the baptizer through direct revelation. And that's why he knew that, yes, Jesus was the chosen Messiah. Verse 35 introduces to us Jesus' first two disciples. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, these men were originally followers of John, and it's a testimony to John's unselfishness that he pointed them to Jesus. Jesus is gaining two disciples, but John's losing two disciples. In chapter 3, verse 30, later, John the Baptist will say of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. As soon as Jesus took center stage, John started to step aside and bow out. John had prepared the way, and now it was his goal to get out of the way. Verse 38. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? These two men were Peter and Andrew. And they're now interested in hanging out with Jesus. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. You know, the Israeli day starts at 6 a.m. So this was about 4 in the afternoon. 
Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and came to him. We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Three times we see Andrew in the scriptures, and every time he's mentioned, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. Here he's bringing Peter. How about us being an Andrew this week and bring somebody to Jesus? Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas was an Aramaic word. And Aramaic was the language spoken on the streets in Jesus' day. It was a Semite language that was brought back to Israel from Babylon. Aramaic was probably the language that Jesus spoke 90% of the time. Now here, Jesus renames Simon, Andrew's brother. He calls him Cephas, which means stone. Later, Jesus is going to reiterate this name change by giving Simon still another name. His Greek name will become Peter, which means rock. You know, often when a person makes a dramatic turnaround in their life, they take a new name. And this is what happened to Peter. Jesus is going to transform this man. He's going to become Cephas, a stone. He's going to become Peter, a rock. He's going to go from being shifty to being a solid rock. Verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And boy, did Philip ever follow Jesus. You know, tradition says that Philip followed Jesus all the way to his grave. That after the resurrection of Jesus, Philip preached the gospel in what is today modern Turkey. And in 54 AD, he was scourged and he was crucified for the cause of Christ. Oh yes, Philip followed Jesus for the rest of his life. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip was a Galilean from Bethsaida, a fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was Peter and Andrew's hometown. But notice here the chain reaction that's set off by Jesus. Andrew finds Peter. Jesus finds Philip. Philip then finds his buddy Nathaniel. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, when people find Jesus, it sets off a chain reaction. You find Jesus and then you find someone else and they find someone else and they find someone else. A blessed chain reaction gets set off by Jesus. And so he goes, Philip goes to Nathaniel, his friend, and he he tells him about Jesus. And Nathaniel said to him, Ah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nathaniel was skeptical. He knew of Nazareth's seedy reputation. You've got to understand that Nazareth was just a tiny little Galilean town. It's set at the crossroads of three of several major caravan routes. I think three different caravan routes. Here's how to picture Nazareth. It was like a South Georgia truck stop. Nazareth was the kind of town you'd expect to find a son of a gun, not the son of God. And that's why Nathaniel scoffs. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's response. Philip said to him, come and see. Isn't this great? This is how Jesus responded to Andrew and Peter back in verse 39. He said, come and see. And now Philip's turning around, or Nathan, uh, Philip's turning around and saying to Nathaniel, come and see. This phrase, come and see, was an expression that was used by the rabbis. It meant literally, come and let's sit down and let's investigate this matter together and let's check it out ourselves and see if this is true. That's what Philip is inviting Nathaniel to do. You know, Christianity sells itself. You don't have to push Christianity very hard. All you have to do is invite someone to to come and see. Just sit down with me. Let's talk about it. Let's think this thing through. Once you remove the fog from people's eyes, 
Once you clear up their misconceptions about God and you help them see clearly the truth about God, the truth of the Bible, Christianity becomes an extremely attractive way to live. Extremely attractive. You don't need to put the hard sell on somebody. Like here, all it takes is, hey, come and see. Let's just sit down. Let's talk about this. Verse 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Apparently, Jesus had never met Nathanael personally, and yet he had supernatural knowledge of Nathanael. He knew that Nathanael was an open-minded man, that he would assess the facts fairly. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Nathanael questioned if anything good had come from Nazareth. So Jesus shows his prophetic capacities. For in his mind's eye, Jesus had seen Nathanael. He had seen him there under a fig tree, kicking back in the shade, munching on some fruit. When suddenly Philip walked up, Jesus had seen that picture in his mind. And boy, when he told Nathanael, Nathanael was impressed. He said, Rabbi. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. How did you know that about me? You, you must have supernatural origins. You know, in the end, it didn't take much to convince Nathaniel, did it? Jesus saw across time and space. He saw, that no man, he saw what no man could, could see on his own. And it caused Nathaniel to trust in Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. And he said to him, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, this refers to Genesis chapter 28 and Jacob's ladder. You remember that story? Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau. When he had this vision of a ladder to heaven, it was as if God was dropping down down a rope for Jacob to grab hold of. Nathanael apparently had been meditating on Genesis chapter 28. When Philip approaches him to tell him about Jesus... And now Jesus is telling him, look, I am the fulfillment of what you were reading. I am Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the way from God to man. Jesus is the way to find God. He's the ladder to heaven. You'll know God, Nathaniel, by following me. That's what Jesus is saying. And over the next three years, Nathaniel will see heaven come to earth. He'll live by this ladder. He'll watch the miraculous and the angelic. And he'll observe bold evidence for the deity of Jesus. As Philip said to him, come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, the journey is about to begin. Well, let me close with a quick summary of John chapter 1. Jesus is the Logos. He is the life. He is the light. He is the lamb. And he is the ladder. Get it? The Logos. The life. The light. The lamb. And the ladder. And Jesus will be all that to you and more. If you choose to trust him with your life. And it's my hope that you will.